0: You're listening to episode 123 of the Writing Life podcast from the National Centre for Writing, a weekly podcast for anyone who writes. I'm Simon Jones, and I'm joined today by Peggy Hughes.
1: Hi, Simon.
0: Hello, welcome back.
1: Hey, thanks for having me back. Nice to be back.
0: No Steph this week because mm. she has moved house and BT have not yet fixed her internet, which is very annoying. This is uh, the kind of thing that would have been annoying in any year, but in 2020, not having your internet is fairly it's, catastrophic. It's
1: an absolute tragic set of affairs, really. I mean, it's, um, yeah, this despicable. I think life admin in the great year of COVID has just taken on monstrous proportions to be honest.
0: <laughs> Peggy, how have you found twenty twenty in in a professional context in terms of the work that your programming team's been doing?
1: Oh yeah, well I'll start by saying I think that the whole team have been utterly remarkable. Just an astonishing bunch of people across the organization just working so hard in such funny times, honestly. I mean, I think we've just all had to make a friend of disappointment and flexibility and reshaping and postponing and all of those all of those things that are you know that we've all had to had to uh, become used to so um so yeah it's been a really really interesting time but I think we're in a in a relatively fortunate position insofar as a lot we we already had a a brilliant podcast Simon um you know we we already have lots of digital resources and a blog and learning platforms so we weren't beginning from from scratch, in that sense, um, in in a way that I, I suspect a lot of people um, who maybe didn't have those platforms were. So you know, we were able to to kind of repurpose and, and reinvent things, and and that's what we did. Really, we we um, we delivered lots digitally. Um, we reshaped things into podcasts and online events. But you know, we've been able to really reach reach very very far farther than than the walls of the Great Hall with our work, which is. Um, only a brilliant thing you know we've had thousands of people viewing some of our events online you know from all over the world and that's a that's a lovely lovely thought to be honest so yeah swings and roundabouts of course but um, yes. aiming <laughs> you mean for the positive
0: <laughs> absolutely you always aim for the positive Peggy um, and now we're sort of in the tail end of 2020 uh, although you know 2020 has no particular sense of time it's but, been 63 uh, we're,
1: we're, years long 2020
0: <laughs> exactly <three. laughs> yeah but we're getting there um yeah. and 2021 obviously we none of us really know what's coming up but there's some positive signs from the scientific community and all that mm-hmm. uh, What what are you kind of how are you looking to the next year in terms of natural center for writing and, and what we're up to
1: yeah well it's not going to be quiet we've got lots we've got lots coming lots planned i mean as as again with with every everybody and everything you know we're just taking things slowly in terms of how high and when we can be absolutely back in the building and getting getting those doors open but but while we're while we're thinking about that, we're we're, we're continuing to create opportunities uh, for and with writers. Just uh, this week, we um, launched a programme that we've been working on for some time called Open Doors. Um, and that's really a, a big, lovely suite of commissions and invitations um, for us to work with writers and to, to kind of really think about this time that we're in, um, in terms of what writers need and what we as a national centre writing can can give them so yeah i think we've just it's just been such a year of of things being closed hasn't it of doors being closed and of 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 sort of sad things and i think this was an opportunity for us to come into the new year with a nice a nice new range of work to celebrate so we've got a couple of different sort of strands within that program which i can walk you through if um, the the whole sort of piece sort of came together when i was reading um Swath hollow um recently, who's a poet I'm sure a lot of our, our listeners will be aware of, um, who himself was an immunologist as well as a poet, um, and, and his poem, um, um, The Door, uh, and it's one of his more celebrated poems really, but the first, the first stanza is, go and open the door, maybe outside there's a tree or a wood a garden or a magic city um, and i suppose that really sort of coalesced around the idea of what we were trying to do with this this program hence the, the title open doors it's about encouraging people to think of, of to, for writers to think of new ways of working new collaborations new avenues for their thinking so yeah so that's sort of the, the baseline for the whole project and within that as i say we've got a couple of strands there's new ways of working um, and that's for us to kind of invite um uh, as programmers to work with us on a, on a on a COVID proof um, literature experience. You know, as I said already, you know, we've, we've had loads of brilliant conversations via Zoom and via the podcast, but I think what, you know, loads of us have been missing is that sense of being together in a space and that shared, you know, just the, the shared wonder at, at listening to a writer talk about their work. So this is an opportunity to, to explore just what, what can an event be that's not necessarily only on Zoom, or, or if we can't be in a room together, what, what else can we do? We've got the best of digital, and that's for um, a piece that's that's only online, that can't exist uh, uh, in, a, in a room, really. it's That's an invitation for um, a writer to work in collaboration with an artist or a practitioner from a different field, really, to, to sort of, it gives a bit of time and space and money to build something that they might not otherwise have built. So whether that's a film or an audio piece or... Or something
0: else. Yeah, I love both of those because I think like you know, we've been so busy this year and we've kind of, you know, had to convert a lot of stuff into digital forms, but inevitably I think everyone this year has been kind of scrabbling to do that and it's you know, been forced upon us and we've not necessarily had time to to think about how best to do this stuff. So these commissions will hopefully bring people in and give them the space to really push at the boundaries and figure out, you know, what is the best way to do a lot of this?
1: We've also got uh, a room of one's own, which is a three uh, times one week writer in residence opportunities, just just, um, a working space, not a residential as in accommodation. And that's for um, local writers really in the region um, who are women or identify as women uh, to, to, to take up residence with us. Um, for a week and it's paid and again very much an encouragement to work on something that they might not otherwise have had time to work on really just a bit of a bit, a bit again room breathing space we, we had a similar uh, we had this project last year and it was wonderful and we had a brilliant um, resident called Alicia and she um, came and was with us for a week Um, And, yeah, it's just, again, opening the doors of our building as well and kind of um, inviting people in. All to say, obviously, it's um, COVID uh, secure. So if for whatever reason we need to to do it digitally, then then we will do that. Or if we need to postpone, we will. But, But, yeah, all going to plan. They will be in our Smith room at Dragon Hall, named for our patron, the wonderful Ali Smith. They'll get a bit of time and space to write, and then two other ones, and these are both um, sort of they're going to be commissions uh, that we're going to in, um, invite the writers to work with us. But they're worth mentioning because I think they're going to um, hopefully inspire some really interesting work about where where writers are today and what how COVID has had an impact on them and their work. And so that's Weather with You, which in which we're going to commission four pieces from four writers uh, working across the UK to reflect on. Yeah, the weather where they are really. What has twenty twenty been like? Um, how has their perception of themselves changed, if at all? Uh, and then fifth and finally, we've got translating science, and that's um, part of a, a really exciting um, collaboration that we're working on with the Norwich Research Park, which is an amazing, sort of world-beating place for for the for science and for research. Uh, so yeah, it's just to see what happens when you take writers and pair them with scientists to explore. Uh, the impact that can have on the the public's understanding of life sciences and health and medical research.
0: Fantastic. Such an exciting package of stuff. And uh, if any of that sounds interesting, you can find out full details and how you can apply and get involved over on the website. If you head to nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk, you will find Open Doors on the front page at the moment. So yeah, do check it out. And if you have any questions, you can get in touch with us. But yeah, hopefully we're going to see lots of really interesting creative work coming out of that.
1: I hope so. I've got my fingers crossed. Yeah.
0: Yes. So uh, on the show today, we have writer Stuart Turton talking about his new book, The Devil and the Dark Water, uh, which is um, a very exciting exciting book. I've not read it yet. uh, But Vicky Maitland is on the show asking the questions. Uh, It's a fascinating chat about how Stuart researched the piece and the inspirations behind it and it's kind of thematic connections to Sherlock Holmes and Watson and all kinds of bits and pieces and just wait until you hear about the the real life inspiration behind the events of the novel which uh, I immediately had to stop listening and go and look it up on Wikipedia Uh, it's quite remarkable stuff Um, so let's hand over to Vicky chatting with Stuart
2: hi Stuart or Stu thanks for joining us on the podcast
0: Thanks for having me, it's appreciated.
2: I don't know about you, it's obviously been a funny time over the last several months, but I've been finding <laughs> it absolutely impossible to read during lockdown.
3: Really? Oh, I enjoyed your play, a funny time. I think it's a really lovely way of sort of like taking its hard edges off. It's been a bit strange <laughs> recently, it's been a bit of a funny time. Very, very horrendous and very awful in every conceivable metric, I think. Um I've exactly the opposite. I've read loads recently. I've um my daughter got taken out of childcare, she's two, so obviously when we locked down she had to come out of childcare and we had her and I couldn't get anything done. I couldn't do any writing, I couldn't do any reading. Yeah. And I really missed those things and the moment she went back into childcare I threw myself back into all my reading and all my writing. But it's been it's been lovely. I probably shouldn't say that about the pandemic when lots of people were dying, <laughs> but it's been it's been very pleasant.
2: Well, I'm incredibly jealous because I've found that nothing has gripped me. I'm distracted by absolutely everything. But your very lovely publisher did send over a copy of your newest novel, The Devil in the Dark Water, and I think it might have actually cured my quarantine reading block because I'm already over halfway through, totally loving it. So thank you for writing yet another fantastically exciting and gripping book. It's been brilliant.
3: That's such a nice thing to say. Thank you really much. That's like... When I hear things like that, you're just like, that is the best compliment you can possibly get, because I just write my books to be enjoyed. Like, I know there's all these other things you're supposed to aspire to and you want from them, and I do, but the the fundamental thing is I want people to just enjoy spending time in my world and just want to do that more than they want to watch Netflix or even go for a run or any of the other things that are competing for our time these days. So thanks, Vicky, That's really nice. It's
2: it's. Well, thank you, because it's just been such a pleasure to find myself absorbed in a world and find myself pulled along by the plot and the fantastic characters who I definitely want to talk a bit more about in a moment. Um, But before we get started, I wondered if you wouldn't mind giving us kind of your Spark Notes version of the novel, your elevator pitch.
3: That's the funny thing about this one, because it's my second novel, you don't have to do that. So the first novel you're taking to agents and publishers, and you've got to have all the advice is like, make sure you have your elevator pitch. Make sure you know your brilliant first line of the book, and you know, you know you've know, you got to be able to sell it to them in like a page or a paragraph or whatever it is. And then they give you a deal for two books, and your second one's just like, yeah, do what you want. It doesn't matter. <laughs> so, like, so you go into the world, I'm completely unprepared. So like I'm doing interviews and trying to promote it, and people are like, what's it about? And I'm like, ah... So the best I've got so far is that it's set in 1634 uh, aboard a merchant vessel that is travelling from uh, Batavia, which is uh, now Jakarta, all the way up to Amsterdam, and it's going to be an eight-month voyage. But as soon as they set to sea, weird, really weird, spooky things begin to happen on board. Strange symbols, animals are slaughtered, and it leads up to this impossible murder. And it looks, all the clues and all the evidence points to there being a demon on board committing these crimes. So thankfully... On board, they've got the world's greatest detective who could solve this mystery, except he's a prisoner and he's shackled and he's been thrown into the worst, most dire place on the ship—this little pit at the front of it—and it's left to sort of Watson-style sidekick to pick up the mystery and solve the mystery. instead, um, so that's basically it. So he's got to wade through this. We've got a motley cast of characters. We've got the crew, cutthroat crew. We've got noble passengers. We've got, everyone's got a secret on board, everyone's up to something, everyone's got their own agenda, and it's up to Aaron, my Watson Star sidekick, to sort of get through all that and get to the truth of what's happening on this boat and save everyone's life. So hopefully, I said at the beginning, it's just really good fun. That's what I was aiming for.
2: It certainly is that. And I think um, there are a couple of things I want to pick up on that you said there. Firstly, the Watson style sidekick, because your book has been described uh, as William Golding meets Arthur Conan Doyle. And I think there's definitely that kind of Holmes and Watson dynamic between Sammy and Arendt. And um, I'm just kind of wondering how much you were inspired by Holmes and Watson during the writing, or if it's something that came out quite organically as you were creating these characters
3: no i had it in the mind from the beginning so i had the setting first i had the boat i came across the this um setting is based on a real life shipwreck that happened in 1629 and i came i came across that while i was traveling was 23 i was traveling across australia and i came upon this the story of the shipwreck and um i won't go into that too much because that shipwreck is a truly horrible brutal story but suffice to say the captain managed to get a lot of the passengers and crew off the doomed ship onto these series of islands. They took off to get help, but unbeknownst to him, he left everybody in the hands in the care of a psychopath. And the ah. psychopath butchered 125 of them before the captain got back. Oh. <laughs> um, so, yeah, and, and obviously worse for the, the women on board the ship. So it's a really, it's a really horrible story, but within it, these other amazing stories. So the captain's voyage should be legendary because he was in Uncharted Waters when he got wrecked. Uh, He managed to make it 30 days across the ocean to back to Batavia without any form of navigation, without any maps, without knowing specifically where he was going just using celestial navigation and he got back and then he managed to get a rescue ship back out to these islands. So not only did he get away, he came back and brought us help and that's an incredible feat of seafaring. You have... Amongst all the passengers, um, you had this soldier who my Aaron Hayes is based on, and he was called Weep Hayes, and he fought running battles against the psychopath and the psychopaths' men, and he managed to get as many passengers as he could to safety. And by the end of the story, he managed to capture the psychopaths and sort of like bring a little bit of order to these islands. So the fact that anyone survived is really down to this guy you had a noble woman who did everything she could to survive so if you've read the book you begin to see some of these traits emerging in my characters so yeah. i kind of i took those things that i liked and i kind of ditched the really brutal heavy stuff because i just thought i don't want anybody to be you know slit in the wrists like 10 15 pages into yeah. it which is which is very much the way you feel if you read the true story
2: Oh, so it was quite inspired by that original, like, I, as, you, as you were talking, I was thinking, oh, I can identify that character, I can identify mm. that character. Did you find yourself doing a lot of research before writing this book, or is, it, is this a story that's been percolating in your mind ever since you were, do you say you twenty 23 when you first okay. heard
3: of it? Both, mate, both. So, I mean, so to go back, to, I didn't fully answer your question, apologies for that. The Sherlock Holmes and Watson thing is I had the setting. And I always, knew, I always knew I wanted to do something with it. Even when I was writing Seven Deaths, I was half thinking about this other, this boat and it'd be a great, and I didn't know that to tell it, just like tell the truth, like make it a piece of nonfiction, just write a nonfiction book about it because it was such an interesting story and so few people seem to know about it. And then, so I'm writing Seven Deaths and that's going where it's going and you get the second book deal. And I like, well, I want to do something that is in the same wheelhouse. It's a mystery. It has detectives, but I want to put it on this boat and I don't want to move as far away from Seven Deaths as I possibly can because I've written that novel. I don't want to be the Eight Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle guy or the Nine yeah. Deaths. Of Evelyn. I don't want people to know what they're ever going to get from me. I want every book to be a surprise in terms of like genre and characters and setting and everything. Yeah. But, but when I started thinking about a boat and a haunted boat, it was a, it, it felt like a Sherlock Holmes mystery to me, just right from the beginning. Like nothing, without even thinking too deeply about it. I was never gonna put a sort of Agatha Christie style detective on there. I was never gonna put a Wara or a Marple or any other type of detective. It felt like a Sherlock Holmes story that Conan Doyle maybe would have got to eventually if he'd lived long enough. Yeah. So, so that's like that's what I'll do. That's what I'll do. But I don't like Sherlock Holmes very much. <laughs> I, <laughs> I um, it's a really weird thing. I absolutely loved and devoured Agatha like, Christie between about eight and ten. I moved on to Conan Doyle after that and just never got the same feeling. I loved the adventures. I loved the idea mm. that he's always dashing around and putting disguises on and doing ridiculous things. But I never liked Sherlock Holmes as a character. He's at the centre of all these mysteries and he's just a dick all the time. Yeah. <laughs> and like the, the later adaptations do everything they can to humanise him. And his arc is always an emotional arc about how he becomes nicer. And he never does in the books. He's always a tool. And like the people around him, a brilliant dr watson is a war doctor he's a hero you've got lestrade who runs the best policing unit in the world at that time and they're all treated like buffoons and incompetence and the book has to sort of diminish them to elevate homes mm. and I, I never got on board with that so yeah so when i came to do this i took the archetype of those two and kind of did what i wanted to do with it so like it's a weird thing to sort of like banish your demons but i was just like well I'm going to make these into my versions of those detectives. So I humble my Holmes character early doors and I elevate my sidekicks. And it was just such a fun writing thing to do. So once I had all of that, that was the initial idea. And then it was just research. It was, I wanted the meticulous plot. I wanted it to be quite clever and twisty and turning and I wanted lots of incident, but I also wanted to feel, as grounded as it could. I wanted the mystery to be part of the history. So I wanted it to come out of the, the motivations these people would have had in this uh, this period. And I wanted them to be limited in the same way they would have been in this period. So I just threw myself into the historical research. So this boat, the, uh, the Sardum, is based on uh, the Batavia. The Batavia has been rebuilt. Uh, so so the real-life boat that got wrecked, they've rebuilt it in Amsterdam, in a port in Lillestad. And you can go there even where well, you can't go there now but when this is all better you can hopefully go there and they have built it using the same materials the same techniques that they would have done back in the day they take it out and sail it around but most of the time it's just a floating museum and you can wander around it so i spent two days on that and to put that in context i'm six foot two and the boat yeah. is, is it looks massive from the outside and when you get onto it you're constantly hunched over you're constantly cramped and that feeling of claustrophobia, that's where that came from, those two days on the boat. I had yeah. like, When I was on it, it had like 35 tourists or something, plus the, um, the volunteers who were manning it, and it still felt like it was incredibly crowded. It still felt like there was eyes and ears everywhere, and back in the day, there would have been 300 people on this boat, wow. so you can imagine what that would have felt like. So I tried to take all of that, and then... What else did I do? We went back to Jakarta. So I wandered around. There's like remnants of old Batavia still around There's little bits of canals and little bits of walls you can go and look at in good museums. So I did that. And then I went and sat myself in the British Museum, uh, the British Library, sorry, and just sat down. And I just poured through sort of passenger archives and diaries and journals of people who were seafaring in this period. And I read through the accounts of what ship life was like. And actually a lot of the names from the novels come from those passenger manifests from ships that were traveling from 1629 to about 1640. So I just run through the list of names and just pluck out the ones that were really interesting to me. And then the trick, trick obviously, then is just to throw away most of it. You've got to to do the historical research so you know which bits of your historical research you can't possibly use. Are going to get in the way of your story? Because I couldn't do that obviously without knowing about it because I feel like a fraud. So I had to sort of just pour through it to work out what wasn't going to work, what my story needed to sort of like, you know, mess around with or alter. So, yeah, it's an interesting... I've never done it before. It was an interesting experience.
2: No, because I was thinking your first novel definitely had a very kind of period feel to it but was not a period book whereas this feels so grounded in a time and a place and did you find the fact that you had this kind of supernatural twist did that enable you to kind of set, set the shackles off your research a little bit or did you feel quite bound to um, the authenticity of those voices that you were reading in the, um, in the passenger articles and in, in the archives?
3: No, it's interesting. I never felt any deference to authenticity. I was always kind of like, I will always. The stories got prominence for me always, and then the characters, and but it's my characters. So once I've created my characters and I knew, know who they are and what they're doing, they've got my loyalty. So hopefully that's yeah. come out of the history and the historical research. But if they're going to do something, so. Uh, Sarah is such a big part of this novel, but she jimmed her way into this novel. She was supposed to be a background player and she forced her way forward. Mm. She took up more of the plot. She demanded more of the plot. Um, But even, you know, she wouldn't have had this agency. Even this agency she carves out for herself through her cleverness, she wouldn't have got back in this period. So if I've been authentic to who she was, she wouldn't have been the character that she became. She couldn't have been allowed. So it was always like trade-offs like that where I was just like, I know what would have been happening here. I'm going to give ten percent of the history because then she can wiggle out of it and go about her business, and she can be this interesting character that I want to be and drive my plot the way I wanted to drive it.
2: Yeah, I'm so glad you said that, and so glad that you you listened to your character because she's one of my favorites in the book. She's such this strong force, and she's it's interesting thinking about the Holmes and Watson dynamic because I think. Um, instantly, when when um, when I said that, I was thinking about Sammy and Aunt. But actually, there's quite a lot of that between Sarah and Aunt. In many ways, she's almost a, a version of a Holmes to his Watson as well.
3: Yeah, thank you. Exactly. Yeah, that's like that's what I was going for. The idea that Arund isn't a willing. He's not a willing Holmes in figure. He's a sidekick. who likes being a sidekick. He wants to be a sidekick. He finds nobility in protecting Sammy Pips and helping Sammy Pips do his work. He doesn't believe he can do this work himself and he is wrong about that. But I don't think he's wrong about, this is what he wants in the world and it's taken him, he's been in wars and he's fought and he's an older guy and he's come through all that and he's worked out what he wants to be. He's made his choices and he's happy with them. And when he's forced reluctantly into this other role, I don't like stories where sidekicks always want to be the protagonists. I don't yeah. think it devalues them. It devalues the choices they've made up until that point. We go back to the actual Watson just trolling around after Holmes. In those later books, he goes off and starts a surgery. He gets married. He lives his life. He makes his choices. And they mm. kind of snail that by Holmes through them. And I always hated that. And they play it for laughs. But So I wanted my Watson star, my Aaron, to have... To have made his choices and to be happy with his choices and not to want, he doesn't want Sammy's job, but Sarah does, sorry, Sarah, Sarah, Northern Action came (laughs) in the way there. Uh, Sarah Sarah does want that job, like she does want that freedom, she does want that prestige, she is clever enough, She, she can do it. So I like the idea of not recreating the dynamic between Aaron and Sarah but not in the way that the reader might expect, where Aaron gets promoted to Sherlock and he takes a new sidekick. No, no, no. Like is going to be the Holmesian character and Aaron's going to stay as the sidekick because that's where he feels he's best suited. And I think doing that, just it, it's another way I get to explore two sort of detective duo like types, if that makes sense. It gives me mm-hmm. just a lot of freedom to sort of delve into the way mysteries are built, constructed, and these relationship dynamics and just Everything you can do like that, for me as a writer, is just great. Like It just gives me more to dig into on the page.
2: Yeah, because I think um, actually something that both of your uh, novels do is you have um, a motley crew, as you said, kind of originally, a a whole cast of characters. Um, Do you find yourself having favourites? Do you find yourself being drawn more? You said that Sarah kind of came to the fore Mm. and forced her way into the novel. Um, do you do you find it hard to kind of balance all these different voices in order to get your plot? Do you just want to write all about one person?
3: No, I don't, actually. I like having a widespread... I think for a mystery novel, as a structural thing, you need a lot of characters because yeah. I want to make my novels into games with the reader. I want the reader to try and solve them. Um, mm. And there's clues and there's puzzles and there's bits of dialogue that are always important. And I just keep putting them before the reader. So it is a game and I want it to be as fair as it possibly can be. So for that you need like a wide list of suspects, because otherwise mm. it's too easy to structurally work out who's done it in the book, if that makes sense. Yeah. So I yeah, so I like having an ensemble. I like having all the voices because it allows me to explore lots of different bits of the world that I have built. So, you know, people from all different classes give me different views on different bits of the world. Their interactions tell me a lot about the way the world works, and tells the reader a lot about the way the world works. Um, and it also gives me the chance to just like bump a few off as I go along without too many recriminations. Mm. So this novel, the problem was that because it's sort of a, it has horror elements and it has mm. detective mystery elements. Those two genres don't want to go together. Horror wants to kill off all the characters, and mystery needs to keep as many of them as alive because they're suspects. Yeah. So. So because I had that juxtaposition, that was a real problem in the writing quite early doors because, again, to maintain the threat, people kept having to die. But every time I killed them off, I, made, I narrowed those to suspects for the reader. I made it easier for them to simply guess who'd done it. So I had to sort of widen my ensemble characters. I had to bring in more people because I was going to kill them off. But then I felt a... It's what we said before. I felt like I had to give them backstory. I had to give them something to do on the boat. I had to make them interesting in their own right, not just fodder. So you're kind yeah. of constantly trying to, you're trying to build the house, but not make it too big and too unwieldy. And I think that's why I end up writing 130,000 word books.
2: <laughs> I was to say, both of your books are a chunky, chunky mm. um, endeavours. Do you find yourself drawn to those kind of longer style? Have you ever written shorter form Are you are you drawn to writing these big spiralling mysteries?
3: This is all I've ever written. So my only attempt at writing, I used to be a journalist, so I'd write features, 3,000 words was the longest thing I'd ever written. Um, Before that, though, I tried writing an the Christie style mystery when I was 21, and it was awful, so I put it in a drawer and left it there, and i have never gone back to it. So that was my only attempt at doing anything that was long form before or after. The first time I tried it again was when I came to write seven deaths. Oh, wow. So I'm kind of surprised it's anybody else that I write to this length um, mm. because I meant for I meant Devil to be a shorter novel than Seven Dents mm. and it turned out to be a touch longer. Yeah, uh, And again, it was just because I had more characters and I felt I had to give every character their moment and I had to give every character their own little story and their own little sort of motivation and their own secret. So that bulks things out. And also, because I'm investigating a lot of different types of genre, I wanted to write... I wanted it to be a boat novel, but not a boat novel. In terms of, I wanted to have the adventure of being on a boat, having all the storms and disease and all those things that happen when you're at sea. I wanted all of that, but I also wanted it to be a true mystery novel. So I wanted to have all the elements of a lottery mystery. So it's got to have all the red herrings and the clues and suspects. And then I wanted it to be treated as period and a piece of historical fiction. So you've got to have all those. So you're basically trying to jam three books into the space of one book. Yeah. So and the same thing happened with. Seven deaths. Like yeah. I was trying to I was trying to honour a time travel novel. I was trying to honor a sort of like fantasy body swapping novel. I was trying to honor a I got the Christie style locked room and murder mystery. So yeah, yeah I think they if you try and do that, it's gonna come out at this sort of length. But I'm going into book three now with the idea that it's going to be shorter than these two and I'm sort of planning accordingly. So we'll mm. see if it's uh we'll see if it's just something <laughs> in me that's trying to write <laughs> some word novels.
2: Uh I was gonna say both of your Books are also for being so long. They're both murder mysteries written in really quite tight, oppressive settings. So in your first book, the narrator wasn't just bound into a house, but physically bound into different bodies. Whereas in this book, your whole cast is stuck out at sea. Do you think it's the genre of your, the books that that require the kind of those settings that the the mysteries need a fixed space in which to operate, or? Is it that you find the enclosed locations kind of innately interesting and that it um, brings out different things about your characters?
3: I think it's, yeah, right. So one of those boring politician answers is definitely both. It's definitely, <laughs> I think, on a pure structural planning level, it makes sense to write a lot room mystery in a locked of room, um, mm. but have make sure that the reader knows that there's their cast of characters. We go back to the idea that it's a game for everybody. Yeah. So I'm saying, look, there's your suspects. Nobody's going to wander in on page 50. There's going to be no characters you've not met before. Once they're all presented to you, once they're all laid out, that's who you've got. So you know who you're dealing with. And you can get to know them. It means they can keep coming back to these people and sort of dipping in in their lives and they can interact with different people. Whereas if they're allowed to wander off, then my characters who are investigating have to wander off after them. And that takes Mm. you into a new space. It takes you into a new environment. And I find if you're doing that in a procedural, that's absolutely fine because there's very rarely an intention that your investigator is going to get themselves killed or that the, the the thing plaguing them and killing people is going to come. It's never a personal thing. In my novels, the threat is usually personal. It's usually tied back to the investigator as much as the suspect. So in order to keep that, I've got to keep it closed off. I've got to keep them in a nice environment where no one can walk away, where they can't get away. Um, the second thing I think is that I do like putting characters, if you smash everybody into an enclosed environment together, put a trauma at the centre of it, it gives you interesting avenues to explore how they react to it and how they interact with everybody else. It gives me more drama potential. It gives me more comedy potential. People can't just be like, oh, I'm so frustrated by this. I'm leaving. Like, I'm just going to go. Like, the moment you've got that shortcut, my problem as a writer is always, why wouldn't they just take that? If things get too scary, why wouldn't they just leave? If they get Mm. annoying, why wouldn't they just leave? So I can just cut all that off by having these settings. But again, now that I've done it twice and I've enjoyed it twice, and I think it's worked for me twice. I'm going to try and change that for book three again. Um, uh, I was I, about
2: to ask that.
3: <laughs> yeah, sorry. Um, it's like I've got your list of questions. I'm so sorry. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I think I will because I, again, as a writer, I just want to be, I've said this before, and it, there's no way to phrase it. It doesn't sound like but I'm a tool. But I find writing really hard. Like I find sitting down at a computer for eight hours a day to be incredibly difficult and tedious. And it's not a natural thing for me. I'd rather be outside doing literally almost anything else.
2: Mm.
3: So I've really got to be invested every day. When I sit down at my computer, I've got to be invested in that character, that scene, that piece of writing I'm doing that day. So now that I've done two of these, book three's got to change again because it's going to be a different set of challenges. It's going to be a different set of problems I need to solve. So that's what yeah. I'm working
2: on right now. So your first novel was a fantastic success. It won the Costa First Novel Award, was shortlisted for countless others. And um, would, did that come as a kind of surprise to you? Because I assume you were writing that because it was just a story you really wanted to write.
3: Yeah, completely. The, the, surprise doesn't even give it justice. Like even now, I can't really work out what happened with Seven Deaths. Like, yeah. I, I wrote that book because it was niche. Because I had to write that novel. I'd been thinking about it. Uh, so just to go back, so I've wanted to write a of Christie style novel since I was eight. Basically, yeah. I first read her books, but that's all I wanted to do. It wasn't about having a career as a novelist. It wasn't about writing good novels. Or i never thought about that. All I ever thought about was I want to write one of those books the way she did, using the tropes and everything she did. I wanted that. And that was like my flag in the distance since I was eight. And I went away to become a journalist because I wanted to learn how to write after I made that terrible novel when I was 21. That's what provoked me to be a journalist. It's like, Someone's got to teach me structure. Someone's got to teach me how to write. Someone's got to teach me pacing. And i like to be paid while I'm doing it. Yeah. So I went away to do all of that stuff. Always thinking that eventually I'd find my way back to this Agatha Christie style mystery, and Seven Deaths was my take on it. And it took me, you know, I didn't write that till I was 34 or 35 or something, I don't think. So it took an awful long time. Mm. And um, as I was writing it, I think it wasn't until I was in it, like I planned it meticulously but it wasn't until I was in it that I began to realize how complex it actually was and yeah. how much it was asking of the reader and how much I needed to demand of the reader. Um, I didn't know if anybody would enjoy that. I didn't know if there was a reader for it. I didn't know. I had to power up with it because it's the only way to tell that story. But I wasn't confident in it. And I didn't, about a year and a half into it, I was honestly convinced that I was writing something that could never be published. It was just <laughs> kind of like, I don't know what I'm doing here. Because I've never seen anything like it. Apart from something like House of Leaves, which is like a massive, interesting structural. But people go into that because it is a massive, interesting structural novel that plays with the form. This was supposed to be an Agatha Christie murder mystery, and yet it was doing all of this structural stuff. Yeah. So, so I did begin to get really panicked about it. And it wasn't until I honestly thought at every stage of that novel that it would fail. Like, I absolutely was convinced that when I finished writing it, I felt garbage. Um, but I'd spent so long, so I sent it to agent. I didn't think I'd get an agent, got an agent. Didn't think it would get a publisher. Got a publisher. Didn't think it would sell any copies. It sold some copies. Didn't think it would. Win. Well, to be honest, I never thought about awards. But at every stage, I was convinced it would fail, and it just kept massively surpassing those expectations. So I'm just so proud of that, novel. I'm so just so so happy, and so happy that I'm the one who wrote it because it just it is something that whatever happens with the rest of my career, I can always be proud of.
2: Yeah, and you certainly should be. It's a. It's another brilliant novel I read it I picked it up in an airport actually because mm-hmm. I'd heard so much about it and um, I saw it on the shelves I was like oh, no, I need a really good gripping novel to get me through this flight and I um, started reading it on the journey out there and finished reading it on the journey back and absolutely yeah. loved it so yeah oh,
3: thank
2: you uh, brilliant so if you said you started writing it kind of what 34 how long did that process take of writing finding your Um, agent getting published and then did you find this novel easier or more difficult to write because of having that first novel under your belt?
3: Um, It took two and a half years probably of writing and editing and finding an agent that was kind of and then took maybe six months to go through the professional editing process with Alison, my editor at Bloomsbury and all those guys. So it's probably took about three years and a little bit from sort of yeah. like me starting writing it to a turning up on a shelf somewhere, which isn't bad actually considering what the novel is. And Like now, look, when I was in it, it felt like the longest period of time in history. It felt like every day was this, because we gave up quite a lot to write that book. Like I'm talking about me and my girlfriend, but we were working in Dubai. We were travel journalists. We had a cool life but we were going away for two weeks of every year. It yeah. was a dream job, and we were been paid good money for doing it. And when I had the idea for seven deaths, I knew I had to throw all that away and move back to England because I needed, I needed to be surrounded by the rain. I needed to go to these houses. <laughs> and I needed to. And see, like, it's really bad, but I wanted the class system around me. I wanted like, those voices around me, and I
2: yeah.
3: couldn't do that in Dubai. I couldn't do that in a sandpit with glass and steel buildings. It was never going to work. <laughs> So we, we did, we ended up living in like a little one bedroom nursery and it was just, it was hard. Like we had like screaming children downstairs and the smell of nappies coming up the stairs as I was trying to write. We had <laughs> no money because I was only ever taking on journalistic commissions to pay my bills and then I'd stop and then I would go and do this instead. I'd write some debts instead. So there was tons of pressure and there was like financial pressures and there was life pressure, like I'd given up the perfect life to go and do this thing and if it didn't work, then what had I given up before and blah, 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 blah. All this nonsense. had <laughs> that, that was the pressure of um, seven deaths. But then when that was successful, devil, devil was only hard because I had a daughter. We had a baby daughter. She was born yeah. a month after I started writing it so for the first year of it, it's just a car crash, it's like, you can't, <laughs> you just can't do anything with a baby, like, you just, I don't, I didn't know that at the time, I generally thought that I would have, I didn't, I don't sleep much anyway, so it's just like, oh, well, I'll just be, you know, I probably won't get a lot of sleep, but that's okay, it won't really make a difference, and I'll get up, and I'll do my work, and, and that just wasn't the way that panned out, and I was destroyed for a year, and the way i write the way i write my books is that i just sort of internalize i plan them for three months and i internalize them then i never look at the plans again and i yeah so and then i don't know what it is it's the only skill i have but once i do that i can then write out of chronology so i'll write page 34 i'll I'll write chapter 34 one day and then if i feel like it the next day i'll write chapter 12 and chapter 9 without
2: referring back to your plan
3: yeah i don't need to refer to anything i've just got it in my head it's kind of locked in and I can just move around it as I want. And I can keep track, I can then keep track of the threads and I can sort of like, I just hold it all in my head and if I change something from the plan on chapter nine, I know to change that again on chapter 30 and I can just, I don't know, I can't explain it, it's just the only thing I can do.
2: I was like that is a fantastic skill, particularly given how, as you said, like how complex these novels are, how many different threads you're having to hold all at once, how you've got to play with all these different characters and make sure that nothing is contradicting unless you need it to contradict what someone else has said or done. Yeah. So the fact that you never refer back to it is mind boggling to me. Oh,
3: well again, it's the only skill I have, so it's not that like <laughs> if I had any of the abilities whatsoever it would be a bit more impressive, but I <laughs> So just doing that, you can't do that. At least I couldn't do it a newborn baby because I was too tired no. all the time. Like I couldn't hold any of this information in my head. So I was writing page after page after page of nonsense. And the pages weren't connecting to anything. I was just trying to hit this deadline that was in the future. And it was just, it was crap vicky. Like I won't, like it was just for that first year, it was awful. And I went to, when I finally handed my first draft into my editor, I'd written 170,000 words and I kept 16,000 of them. That's how like, wow. bad it was. And I, it was funny because when I handed it to my editor, the usual process there is that she takes it away. She doesn't edit. She says, you probably need to change that, that, and that, and maybe change this a little bit. And it comes back. But I didn't need that from her at that point. What I needed from her was just to take the book away. and me to feel like I'd hit a deadline. And then I needed mm. some time away from it to work out what it was going to be and how I was going to fix it. And that's what happened. So she took it away for three weeks. Poor her and read it as though it was a serious thing. I didn't weeks, <laughs> My kid had gone back to childcare at that point. She was sleeping through the night. My brain was working again. And I started to figure out what the book needed to be. And that's when I honed in on the bow and these characters and this plot. It all became, that's when it became fixed. And then we started again. So I effectively started the book twice. I wrote yeah. one version of it in the first year. And then I started it all over again in the second year. But that, once I book started again, it was miles easier than Seven Deaths because, yes, I had the first year and that was an ordeal. And then it put me under time pressure to hit the new deadlines because I'd lost so much time. But at the same mm-hmm. time, uh, I didn't have the financial pressure. I'm a full time author now, so I get all day to rectify my mistakes rather than wondering where the next batch of work is coming from and how I'm going to pay that bill. Don't need to worry about that at the moment. So I think. Yeah, I think Devil would have been a lot easier if it hadn't been for that hellish baby that we had.
2: <laughs> and, but do you think that you needed that first year, though, of kind of writing this big sprawling uh, mass of words that of which you only kept sixteen thousand of them, to, in order to create this book, or or do you think that you could have just done it from the bat?
3: I don't know. I think I didn't learn anything from Seven Deaths, which is another <laughs> problem with me, is that I learned nothing about writing or the process of writing because it was such a strange book to do. So, the planning of it, I replicated the planning for Devil, mm-hmm. and that seems to work relatively well. But nothing else that I did for Seven Deaths was replicable or useful. So, maybe, maybe I had to make all these mistakes so I could learn about what I shouldn't be doing and what works for me and what I need to get on with. But I don't think it should have taken a year. I think I could have possibly made <laughs> all those mistakes in the first three months and then got on with it if I had had a child, but who knows, I am an idiot. Uh,
2: <laughs> Did you enjoy the editing process? Did you enjoy the kind of wrangling of those 16,000 words out of the 170,000?
3: Yeah, I love that because, again, I'm a trained journalist, so... For me, editing is the story. Like You just write a draft mm. and then you have your material on page and that's literally all it is. It isn't a book, it isn't, it's just materials. It's like the bricks of your house. And then the editing is sort of like building the house out of those bricks. You work out what needs to go where and which ones you don't need and which ones don't fit. I always feel like I'm actually being an author when I get to the editing stage, not when I'm in the writing stage.
1: Mm. Um,
3: so I really, I generally love that stage of it because... As I say, the hard bit for me is sitting down at my computer for eight hours a day. The editing is much more fluid than that. It can kind of happen anywhere I am. It can kind of, you can edit, or at least I can edit while I'm out walking around and doing other things. My brain's ticking over these problems. of like, oh, that needs to go there, that needs to go there. You don't need any of that. So pulling those 16,000 words out of that 170, it's really cathartic as well, because it was just cutting away all these words that had just like tormented me every day that were just... I just had to write them. It just been a slog. It's like, yeah. like pushing a boulder up hill and then just letting it roll all the way back down, and knowing it didn't matter. So yeah, <laughs> I I enjoy it, and I enjoyed it for Devil. I really enjoyed it for Seven Deaths as well, because Seven Deaths went through something a bit similar. Um, and I'm sure I'll end up doing something a bit like it for book three, because I suspect it is just the way I write.
2: Mm-hmm. I think that's really interesting. Because I think that's the opposite of what a lot of writers say. I think a lot of writers seem to say they find the joy in getting their idea out there, and then it's the edit is this horrible process of killing your darlings and mm. uh, scrapping bits that you love but just don't work. Whereas it seems that you've had the polar opposite experience of this kind of wrenching this book out of you and then shaping it afterwards, and that's where you find the pleasure.
3: Yeah, exactly. And I also don't really, I don't ascribe to the sort of killing your darlings thing because it's yeah. all just. It's all equally valid storytelling to me. There isn't, I never, I do of course write lines that I really love, or pages or characters or interactions I really like, but again, maybe it's the journalist. It's a quite cold-blooded process for me. Like I'm always oh, aware a word that it probably won't make the cut, but it just, uh, it's just there to give me options in the edit. It almost sounds like film editing, I guess. Like it's mm-hmm. all just different avenues, especially because I write cross-genre. So my stories can go off and build in different directions and they can veer more towards horror sometimes and more towards, um, especially in this one, it could veer more towards the horror more towards the mystery, and more towards the mystery um, or more towards the seafoing aspect of it. So I always wrote, I would have days where I was heavily invested in writing the boaty bit. So it was really interesting. Those maybe I'd done a lot of research that day and was like, um, I'd found something in my reading and just been like, that sounds amazing. I would write a lot of that, but I write it knowing that I probably won't use it, especially the boat stuff and the because I always wanted that to be background detail. I always wanted that just to feel authentic, without having to go too much into it. I don't want to be Patrick O'Brien. So, yeah, it was. So I yeah, I am quite cold-blooded as I write, I am kind of keeping you aware that a lot of this stuff is going to be irrelevant, even if I love it at that moment. I probably won't love it in six months, and I'll just I can happily cut it out.
2: I wonder if it is that journalistic aspect.
3: Yeah, I might ask actually, I might find out because I've got a lot of friends who are journalists who have written. I do wonder if it's something, it's funny, isn't it? Because that's our job. We're not like teachers, we don't all gather around and sort of like talk about teaching. Um, yeah. we, we generally, when we get together, the last thing we want to do is talk about writing because it's the only yeah. thing we've been doing for sort of like 20 hours. But like so, we All we want to do is like get drunk and talk about the football or the kids or whatever, <laughs> or anything that is not writing. So yeah. I might just go and like piss them off by asking them specifically about that <laughs> process uh,
2: so this third book that you're working on now how how far through it are you and is it so you said it's something different so it's not not a locked room mystery I guess you can't talk too much about it but
3: I, I can't like it's going to be I don't know how to describe it I want it I want all of my books to feel fresh and I want them to be surprises when they hit the reader but I want them to be commonalities throughout them. Mm-hmm. I can't describe, I can't, it's a lock room mystery of a sort. Like that is the best I can say about it. Like I'm trying to do something different to even that bit of it um, and try and sort of widen the idea of what that can be. Um, and I've set myself, a conceit for the novel that is terrifying. Like it's absolutely terrifying to me as someone who's trying to write it. And I don't know, I'm still in that early stage. I've planned it. and it looks good. And I've just, just started the writing. So I'm only about 9,000, words into the writing of it. Yeah. And um, I still don't know if I can pull it off. And that is the <laughs> best. That is like where Devil started is where Seven Deaths started. And now I'm kind of comfortable there, where before I was like, oh my God, this is going to be awful. So yeah. hopefully that means I can sort of like just ride this terror to some sort of conclusion rather than be <laughs> But yeah, that's, I'm sorry, that's probably about as much as I can say at the moment, because the other thing as well, my novels change a lot, like a plan meticulously, but I never plan character. So yeah. I find my characters by writing my characters and by having them in rooms. And the way that Sara's out down took more of that book, I'm hoping will happen again to this novel. And I'm leaving room in my planning for that to happen. So the book I described to you now, will probably be very different to the book <laughs> I in two years. So I simply just don't want to lie to you about it.
2: Well, I, I, I'm excited to read it, no matter no matter what, If it, however much it changes. I'm, I'm really excited to read it when it comes out. Best of luck for the writing of it. I, I'm sure it will be another compelling, gripping, fantastic novel, whether it ends up being shorter as you plan it now or kind <laughs> of another 500-page tome.
3: At some point, I've got to stop writing epics. I just have to. Like, I, just, <laughs> yeah, I can't. I'm not a fantasy author. I can't get away with doing this very much longer.
2: <laughs> uh, I, I I think you can if they if they're all as good as the, these two have been. I'm sure you can.
3: And the problem isn't it, is when you've got 130,000 words and like you don't need 20,000 of them. And it's just kind of like as long as I can be aware of that, I think as I'm writing, I shouldn't have too many problems. The so more, yeah. more than I, as some famous authors do. Uh, you see them writing and you're like you definitely could have got rid of the entire middle bit of that novel
2: (laughs) Um, well thank you very much for your time today that it's been fascinating talking to you and uh, the devil in the dark water is out now so uh, if you're uh, at all intrigued by what we've spoken about today do go ahead and pick up a copy
3: thanks very much mate i appreciate that
0: Thank you for listening and thank you to Stuart and Vicky and indeed to Peggy for coming on the show today to talk about open doors and all the amazing work that her department has been doing this year. If you have questions or want to get in touch with us, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Writers Centre. Check out our Facebook page. You can find us on YouTube and you can of course sign up to our amazing weekly newsletter at nationalcenterforwriting.org.uk. We also have a Discord community, which is full of lovely people discussing all things to do with writing and reading. If you want to join up, it's completely free and you can find a link down in the notes or indeed on the website. Please do rate, review and subscribe to the podcast because it does help other people to find it. Next week, I am talking to John Mullen who has a book called The Artful Dickens, which, as you might imagine, is all about Charles Dickens and is full of really interesting insight. And he has a lot to say about Dickens. It's a really lovely, exciting chat. So thanks again, keep writing, and we will catch you on the next episode.